You're listening to Booth One. Welcome again, friends, to Booth One, your podcast for the best and lively conversation about the arts and popular culture featuring the finest artistic talent in Chicago and across the country. I recently saw one of the most moving, thought-provoking, and beautifully produced plays here at Steep Theater that I have seen in many seasons. My producer and I went to this just a week ago, and it's my great privilege to welcome into the booth today the director of this show and one of the leading actors in the cast. The show is Red Rex by playwright Ike Holter. It is the sixth in a series of plays set in a fictional Chicago neighborhood called Wrightland. Did I say that correctly? You did. Fantastic. Yep. Say hello to Jonathan Berry and Jessica Dean Turner. Welcome, guys. Thanks, Thanks so for much. having us. Yeah. Gr- great to have you on the show. Let me give our listeners a little bit of your CVs so they get oh, to idea of what you... <laughs> I cut out all the bad stuff, Good. Jonathan. Thank I you. really did. Jonathan Berry is a director and teacher in Chicago. He's a steep theater ensemble member, artistic producer at Steppenwolf Theater, and the director of the school at Steppenwolf. You currently are, correct? I am, Yeah. He has an MFA in directing from Northwestern University. He has taught acting, directing, and viewpoints at University of Michigan, Northwestern University of Chicago, Act One Studios, very impressive, and Columbia College. All of those places have... What, what are viewpoints? It's a longer conversation, maybe, but Anne Bogart and Tina Landau sort of co-developed, I'm hesitant to call it a technique, but it's, it is a way of looking at work that sort of puts your lens of how you view reactions to, through a physical space and your sort of body in physical space. Cool. It's a longer conversation yeah. for sure. Sounds like. Um, it's a way that I find builds ensemble really incredibly mm. well and gets people sort of out of their heads and into their bodies and into sort of relationship, which is sort of primary for me. Fantastic. Well, actor Jessica Dean Turner is making her steep debut with Red Rex. Congratulations. Thank you. You're phenomenal in the show, by the way. Thank you. Uh, her onstage credits, other onstage credits, I should say, include The Light Fantastic at Jackalope, Letters Home at Griffin, Fear and Misery in the Third Reich, great name for a play, at Haven. Uh, you've worked at the House Theater of Chicago, Congo Square Theater, About Face, Oracle Productions, and your TV credits include Crisis. And you are, I will tell our listeners, you are represented by the Ponessa Talent Agency. Ponessa, yeah, yeah. So if you want to look up Jessica Dean Turner, go to that website. Well, let me get right to it, because I love this play. Congratulations on the success of it. It has been extended now through March 30th, so listeners, when you hear this podcast in a week from now, you'll still have a couple of weeks to go. I'm not sure there'll be any tickets left. Listen, we've had real success getting people in off the wait list. You know, so many of the tickets got sold really early when it was really cold out, and mm-hmm. I think either yeah. people forgot or moved to Florida, so uh, we <laughs> we have some available. Yeah, on our best night, we got eight people in off the wait list. So. Wow show up. You never know. If you're on the wait list, show up. It's at 1115 West Berwyn, right by the Berwyn Red Line stop. The website is steeptheater.com. And this is a world premiere play. Let me get right to this. Either of you can answer this. Tell us about Red Rex and tell us briefly what the play is about. Give the listeners a sense of this. Jonathan, why don't you go first <laughs> and then we'll to have Jessica um, jump in. Right, man. Where do you start? The play is about a theater company, a primarily white theater company, exclusively white theater company that has moved into this small storefront space in the neighborhood of Wrightland. I mean, the, the play is about the attempt to put on a production and and then specifically sort of what goes wrong when sort of well-intentioned white people um, take a story that doesn't belong to them and try to put on a production and not giving sort of credit where credit is due. For me, it was uh, a play that came to me about a year and a half ago, as I think Mm. when I first read it, and kind of put its finger very clearly on the pulse of what's happening right now in uh, not just Chicago neighborhoods, but also the Chicago theater community. And, you know, Ike and I both have a long, long sort of history in storefront theater. So I think 
for me what's remarkable about the play is as um, as indicting as it can be. He also, I think, writes all of those characters with, with a lot of love and with a lot of understanding and, and allows them to be seen but not let off the hook, um, which I think is really important. Well, very, uh, well put, yeah, absolutely. Jessica, you have one of the great entrances and speeches at the top of the show. I'm not giving anything away. Right, right. What's your take on Red Rex? It's six of seven in his in uh, Ike's Reitland cycle, and we are right in the thick of Reitland being gentrified in this uh, group of colonizers, as they are sometimes described, coming in and taking this story over. So we get to see... Again, how well-intentioned folks can do something pretty terrible, but it's also, there are no uh, villains in this story necessarily. You have people who make a decision that they think is in the best interest for everyone. It, It really does touch on this idea that a lot of theaters and a lot of people in our era have where it's, you want to be the first to tell something and you want to do something juicy, but then there's often collateral damage to that. Yeah. This is a, a play, as you said, Jonathan, a play about a small Chicago storefront theater being done by a small Chicago storefront theater yeah. a, a, in a space probably not unlike what space the fictional space is in the play. Right. That's a very meta experience, I think. What was that like for you? You're an ensemble member at Steep. You've been directing there since 2007. I think you've done a dozen plays there. This must have been quite the experience for you. It's best sort of encapsulated in the fact that there is a a role of a stage manager that is played by uh, Aurora Dashi Winter and uh, our actual stage manager who's, uh, you know, played, played in life by John Ravenscroft. <laughs> um, and, you know, to get to a point in the scene where, like, a break is called and what's remarkable is to see slowly over the course of the rehearsal process where we really started to sort of listen to Aurora sometimes as much mm. as... <laughs> as much as John and sort of, the, the, you know, oh, that's when, cool. when, when Aurora would in a scene call a break, there would just be that little moment of, is that, are, are we, is that us? No, no. Is that for everyone? We're, we're, we're still, <laughs> is that real break? We're still going. Yeah. But, um, yeah. But also I think all you can do is I think direct from a position of personal experience. So in a really great way and sometimes in a really like terrible way, you're having conversations about, about the moments uh, that are happening and hopefully making it true. But mm. by making it true, you're also uh, revealing things that are not potentially your proudest moment. Mm-hmm. So I think, I think that Ike really, really understands how an artist works in a process and the things that are great about that and the things where, you know, there's, there's a lot of ego and there's a lot of protection and there's a lot of vulnerability that's necessary. And mm-hmm. when those elements are all sort of in a room together, you have to tread, I think, uh, a little bit smartly, a little bit carefully. And there's always going to be some, some missteps. And I think, you know, trying to create a room there where those missteps can happen that we all sort of like, what have been a disaster, uh, <laughs> where, where, we all, where, where we all get, get through that. I felt like I was working on something very personal. I felt like we were all somehow yeah. being sure, able, able to sure. do something really personal. You say in your director's notes in the program that theater communities can create its own center of focus, obscuring actual worlds outside the door, which is very much to the heart of what this play does. And by the way, listeners, it's hilarious yeah. as well. <laughs> Ike Holter writes some great stuff. I think my favorite line was about the Jeff Awards, uh, which, came, <laughs> which comes out of nowhere. Right. Um, Ike's play calls out the systematic racism and hypocrisy inherent, well, not just in our nation and our city, but in our theatrical process as well. How do you make plays responsibly? Jessica, is that something that you've thought about? Uh, For sure. Well, you know, to to harken back to that earlier point about it being meta, um, being a black actress and being in a lot of spaces that are predominantly white and being in theater companies where... Uh, in some shows, I am the diversity. I think that white people, let me specify, can do a better job of, or at least be aware of their own biases as they interact with actors of color and how they 
can be engaging in some micro-aggressive-y things to the outright aggressive-y, aggressive-y things because those things pop up. And just because you have color on stage, what does the rest of your team look like? What does the, who's on your board? Who's designing your shows? I think that this show does a good job of asking these bigger questions about, you know, Chicago is made up of predominantly people of color. And then you go and see shows and that is not what you see on stage. So how are all of these companies who uh, are professing that they are about diversity and inclusion and equity actually showing up and doing that? And I think that this play really asks those questions very specifically. Yeah, it's a very fine line that this play walks because you're actually portraying many of the things that the play itself is criticizing or Mm. making fun of or highlighting or shining a light on. You bring yourself to the, the roles that you play and so you have to start from a place of honesty and you can't necessarily have an idea of the character as, as, you know, as much as we try not to judge who we are playing. And I think that in our early process we did a lot of table work where we could unpack the nuances. Because you know this play can very easily be, and, and John gave us that warning, like a lot of in-jokes and like elbows toward the audience. Well, like, yes, what we're exactly. Do. But you have to open yourself up to, well, maybe I am kind of culpable in this thing. And then you have those inner talks uh, about that. One of the things that, I don't think he'd mind us talking about it, but one of the things that both Ike uh, was very sort of clear about, and then we had big conversations with uh, Chris Kamelik, who plays Greg, who's the sort of managing director. And he has some speeches that can really easily sort of like dip towards the sort of mustache twirling villain kind of character and it was really really important and I was so grateful to have Ike in the room at that point because there's a version of the play that can like lean into that and Ike gave some really great notes about dialing all that back he's like it is far more insidious and actually far more true when when the character of Greg or the character of Lana is occupying that position, not in a way that is evil or that is like knowingly sort of malevolent, but rather, right, just every day. That is, I think, the the power of what Ike wrote is that it doesn't allow anyone sort of off the hook by saying, oh, well, sure, that person, that person is clearly a bad person and not me, right? I think that one of the things that is sort of powerful about the piece is that, you know, you have moments of connection or, you know, audience members would with a lot of those folks and then you see sort of the the subtle undermining of that situation mm-hmm. and the way that they are occupying that position as, as every day. And I think that's what we're talking about mm-hmm. when we say, like, the microaggressions. And if you asked Greg or Lana, they would for sure say that they aren't racist. Mm-hmm. You know, that they don't they don't hold that position. Greg plays this, Greg, as you said, this managing right. director. So Chris Chris plays the managing director, Greg, sorry, I should say. And and Lana is the and character name for the artistic for director. The artistic director. Who's also directing right. and writing and writing the play. <laughs> the play. Right. Mm-hmm. Yes. So occupying these uh, these positions of power in in the theater company but then also occupying positions that do remarkable harm to the people in the play the people in the neighborhood the people who are they are ostensibly doing the play for mm. because they haven't done enough work to sort of look at the system and look at how they are sort of leaning into the system that's that, and truly like not giving the people of color voice, power, or access in the process, you know, and how easy it is to sort of sit back and say, well, that's just, I mean, we didn't mean to do that. That's just, yeah. that's just, mm-hmm. that's just how it happened, Yeah, you know, but keeping the racism subtle was, uh, was something that, yeah. that, that like was really like intent on and really it makes the watching of the play far more uncomfortable for Mm-hmm. for white people, I think. And I think that that brand of racism is, is more authentic to Chicago, where we have diversity on paper, but we are so segregated, and we are a liberal and progressive city on paper, but in actuality, you know, you go to neighborhoods uh, like 
redacted, but you will see <laughs> uh, that brand of racism where it is a, a clutch of the purse mm-hmm. or it, those those little moments that we see pop out in Greg and Lana's characters. So. Well, I think you've done a fantastic job with this play, both of you. And all of the actors are just phenomenal in it. He writes with such humor and compassion and humanity that, as you say, the the issues that he's bringing up are subtle, and you've got to play them that way. Jessica, you work as a vocal coach, and you've done some costume design as well, have you not? Uh, for Definition Theater, I realize oh, that's a kind yeah. of a shift, but yeah, tell me about that. Oh my goodness. So that was fresh out of undergrad. Good you one. went to... I went to U of I. University um, of Illinois. University at of Illinois. Champaign. Mm-hmm. So, oh, that's so funny. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I costume designed The Brother Size. That was the, the show that definition, that was the inaugural production that they did when uh, we all came back to the city. I'm, I'm from Chicago, went down to U of I, came back up here with the team. Yeah, it was a, a silly little fun thing. They needed yeah. somebody who could distress, and I was there to help that out. And then I did some vocal coaching for them on the Dutchman over at Collaboraction, I think. University of Illinois' program is very intense from what I understand. Mm-hmm. Um, they really immerse you in the, well, not only the business of theater, sure. but the process of being an actor and, and the things that you have to do. Well, first of all, you learned a little bit of everything, a little costume design, right. a little set design, Vocal work, of course, a lot of physical work, I take it. Yeah, yeah. Did that prepare you well for real life as an actor? It did. Uh, actually, me and Aurora Dachi Winter, who plays Tori in the show. We, the stage uh, manager the stage in the show. Manager, yeah. uh, we went through that uh, rigorous conservatory program together. So it is very interesting for both of us. I, I mean, I don't mean to speak for Aurora, but to occupy the space where we are not actors acting in this thing, but we understand the world of all the conservatory. Ike throws jabs at everybody, the retired actors or the industry made you retire actors uh, (laughs) and the the folks who train them. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, I think that U of I trained us well. Jonathan, you've been directing at Steep for quite some time, as I as I mentioned earlier. Have you always wanted to stay in Chicago? I know you did your training here. And what is it about the theater community here that instills, well, I call it loyalty in, mm. in artists? Uh, there's a certain loyalty here in the artistic community. Have you always wanted to make your living here in Chicago? I got out of undergrad with a performance degree and thought that I was going to go immediately to New York. And then my housing fell through the last minute. And truly, it was a last, last second decision to move to Chicago instead of instead of bouncing around on couches in New York. I just didn't feel like I had the money to do that at the time. Chicago ended up being a remarkably embracing uh, city for me. I was able to get work immediately, which I can guarantee I wouldn't have been able to do in New York City. They really let me grow here as an actor. And then when I started to think, actually, maybe directing might be more my thing, I got a lot of opportunity that way with some of the companies that I already had sort of acting relationships with. I love doing work here. I love, I don't mean to say that there are sort of regional styles of acting, but I think that there are. And I think that like for my taste and preference, the Chicago actor is more to my taste. And I think the loyalty thing, it is a longer conversation and one that I've sort of been thinking a little bit about. And I think that the, Chicago theater community is um, based in a lot of ways on a really, really rich uh, off-loop scene. And I think the off-loop scene is driven by people with a lot of great ideas and not a lot of money. So putting productions together sort of with shoestring budgets and non-union actors who are paid maybe beer money for the run if, if things go well. What it very quickly does is creates a pool of actors who are doing it because they love to do it. There's an understanding, at least in the beginning, there's not going to be an immediate financial reward to that. So I, I think that we have some remarkably passionate, remarkably like tenacious actors who 
grab onto those opportunities. And I think the, you can feel that in the production. It also, I think, creates a culture where the actors are building ensemble more frequently because that ends up being mm. then a benefit. And listen, I haven't, I haven't written a thesis on it, um, <laughs> but I think that the... You have a good, you have a good start going. Though. I think that a lot of the Chicago style is, is linked somehow to the fact that there aren't enough theaters that are able to pay actors a living wage because, you know, then you truly are doing it for the love, which is remarkable, but it's also, I know now that I feel like asking designers or asking actors to do something for nothing, like doesn't feel responsible to me anymore. Steep is looking at making an equity jump. Uh, yes, that year, was which, in the news uh, just this past week. Really exciting for us, but that has been financially prohibitive for us. So there's a, there's a model that is tricky of how do you create a theater model that can pay the artists what they're worth and still get enough audiences and seats. And, you know, it's something that I think we're continually sort of working on. It's a constant struggle. Yeah. Uh, Jessica, how would you describe the Chicago acting <laughs> style? You've been here now for a number of years after school, and yeah. you've been quite successful in, in getting roles. Do you feel that there's a certain style of Chicago actor? Uh, you know, everybody has their own opinions about that. I think so. I mean, I spent about two years in New York. Um, I was getting my degree in education. I had actually decided that I wasn't going to act anymore. But I think that, and well, that didn't last. Here we are. Um, but I, I do think that uh, for my friends who are still in it, because as John was saying, it's hard. Like you can't, I can't pay my landlord with my passion. You know, I can't, I, can't, I don't write <laughs> Most and, landlords. I, right. I think it's against the law. Yeah. <laughs> but I think that for the, the folks who, wants to do it there is that hunger and that you know tenacity and that indefatigable uh chicago thing that starts to happen where you you make a way out of no way and you have these multiple jobs but again people deserve to be paid uh for the the skills that they have and the training that they have amassed to be able to do this thing so on the one hand yes the folks who kick in and, and stay for years and years and years, there is something there that is gritty and useful about uh, the folks that I see who have continued to make a career about this, but also folks are tired and we are hungry and we are, you know, so. And I'll say that I think the off-loop theater community in particular has a sort of tenuous relationship with the, the burgeoning film and TV mm -hmm. industry, mm -hmm. but I think that the best thing about TV and film work is that they are uh, they are starting to figure out that there are some remarkably talented actors in the Chicago pool and able to then sort of cast them either for a day or three days or God willing a series regular right mm -hmm. like on on some of these programs and one of the things that we are certainly trying to figure out in the in the off-loop community is, how to make sure that we have a structure that is set up so that we can use these remarkably talented people in our productions and collaborate with them and have them do these roles, but then also be able to take a film job if it comes up because mm -hmm. that will give them rent for th three to four months yeah. that we can't do, right? But, but that also then creates a little bit of cushion so that they can more frequently do then. And I think, gosh, there are... I would say the majority opinion is, man, if I can do a play rather than a TV show, I would rather do a play. <laughs> yeah. Artistically, it's a more satisfying experience. Sure. But financially, I can't afford it. So right. how, to, how to create a sort of symbiotic relationship between the film industry and the, and the off-loop theater community where people can do the plays mm -hmm. that they want to do that, that are really sort of stretching their talents and really like letting them do the thing that they have been trained to do. Trained to do, sure. Well, also like yeah. being, being the reporter on Three Days of Empire and paying their rent for three months. Jonathan, you work all over the city. How do you choose which projects to take? You must be busy seven days a week, you know, with your regular job at Steppenwolf, and that's not an easy one either. Yeah. And then you find time to do these projects at these off-loop theaters. 
Are you very careful about picking the ones that you want to do? Uh, or have you become more careful as your career has advanced? I love the narrative that I'm turning down work left and right. Um, but, um, but if you have a job, call me. Um, no, since I took uh, on the, the artistic producing job at Steppenwolf, which is, I don't mean to say nine to five because very few things in theater are actually just nine to five, but it is like, it's a Monday through Friday office job. It's the first time in 20 years out of undergrad that I had a salary or insurance. So I am grateful for uh, a lot of the things that that position gives. And also, I'm, I like the, the job and the work that, that we're doing there. That being said, I do, I think, my preferred job is to direct plays. Um, and I've been fortunate to have long-standing relationships with two primary companies that, you know, that I can be in dialogue with about sort of the the. the the place to do steep um, and steep and griffin griffin a company mm. member at both places and you know steppenwolf has been really really uh, anna shapiro ran my internship 20 years ago at steppenwolf and uh that ended up being a pretty great internship yeah uh, you know 20 years in hindsight now um she's the artistic she's director, the artistic at, steppenwolf director at steppenwolf and you know, she's 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 invested in my work there as well so I have three companies that I get to have conversations with in that kind of way. You know, choosing work, I do. Like, Pete, Pete and I laugh because I think, gosh, have I done 12 plays with them? I think we're about six and six in terms of uh, plays that I brought to Steep and plays that Pete has brought to me uh, for a potential Steep. So, you know, there's a little bit of a rivalry now of, like, what's going what's gonna to break the tie? Yeah, um, yeah. You know, but Pete knows my aesthetic incredibly well. I know, I know Pete's pretty well at this point so it's a good navigation so you're freelance in terms of your directing and you're a gun for hire i <laughs> i am but I, that's fa- I, well I, I think you have to be i think right? i think you do have to be but uh, i've done a couple of jobs now where like oh, i want to work for that company um they're offering me a play i'm not a hundred percent sure i'm in love with that play it was easier to spend, I think, artistic capital on something that that I wasn't as passionate about ten years ago, five years ago, than it is now. So I do think that I'm trying to be more selective about, hey, I want to make sure the play that I'm working on has something that I really want to be saying right now. I assume, right, Jess, you go through similar situations. Yeah, there are definitely companies and uh, directors and things that are on my vision board things that I am most passionate about and things that if I'm going to be spending this much time doing something, because, you know, that earlier conversation, I am a a working non-equity actor. So if I'm going to be doing this much work for this, you know, stipend, it needs to be something that is artistically fulfilling and um, something that I'm, I truly believe in with a group of people that I think that will uh, not only advance me career wise, but also feed me artistically. It's a it's a grind, you know. You you finish your your regular day job. Like I, I teach, so I deal with high schoolers in the daytime. And then if I'm going to be spending that extra four hours of my life afterwards, it needs to be something that will feed me, if not if in money. Because you go from your day job <laughs> yeah. and you commute to the theater right, for right, either right. rehearsal or as you are now in a show and you have a performance this evening. And so it's a long day and it's a lot of commitment in terms of your time and your travel. And it must be exhausting some days. Uh, when I was fresh out of undergrad, you, you start to, you have less of a, that gift of discernment because you're like, I just want to be in the world and be seen. And you know, you're, you're very eager. And then you start to hone your taste and you figure out where, what your wheelhouse is, and so finding things that fit that, and sometimes a season can go by and nothing is doing that, or you know the phone's not ringing. But yeah, I think that it is good to have that healthy sense of uh, discernment, but also sometimes you just gotta play. Like yeah. sometimes you just have to like I'm gonna leap into this thing and do my actor push-ups and be back on stage just to make sure that I can still do the thing. And then sometimes you get something that you are incredibly passionate about, which is Red Rex for me. Right. So. 
I, I did a lot of rewrites, and there was it was a really exciting, volatile sort of writing process where things changed, certainly daily, and mm-hmm. sometimes big things changed. And you know, one of the one of the things that I could never quite figure out because I was working nine to five, I, I didn't always get the opportunity to like read the new pages coming in, but somehow the cast was not only reading the new pages but also like memorizing big chunks. I don't. I don't know how you all did. What, like, when, when, when were you memorizing? Um, I would be on the bus and on the train and you know, muttering. Or uh, <laughs> this is so bad. In class, I would give my, all right, kids. You know, go rehearse your scenes, and I would open up my email and start muttering my lines to myself. But you just you find little snatches of time to just steal away and do it. So. Yeah, I was talking to a friend of mine the other day, and we both came out of theater programs years ago. And I don't think I could memorize a whole script anymore. I, I just, I'm so out of practice at it that it's, I, I think it's a, I think it's a muscle that you need to keep exercising. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I did so a it show is amazing. Like 10 years ago now, uh, assisted on a show with Mike Nussbaum. And Mike is. When he did Smokefall, he was the oldest working equity actor in the United States. And 90 I think or something, 92. Um, but he does. He does the New York Times crossword puzzle and like Sudoku puzzles every morning. He also sort of famously got up every morning and did like 75 push-ups because he's a crazy person. Okay. Um, but wow. I mean, he, he treated the brain as a muscle and said, you have to do literally like exercises to keep it to keep it strong and to keep it taut and mm. he treats his brain as though it's because he because he recognizes as soon as he loses the ability to memorize he loses his livelihood mm. um, so. yeah I have a play idea for you, uh, Jonathan. Are you a writer as well? Have you tried your hand at no, playwriting no I'm terrible at it oh gosh. I, I am really good at interpreting, and as soon as you put me in a room and say anything can happen, I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> do, you, do you like traveling by train? I love trains. Yeah? Do you like trains, Jessica? I, yeah, I dig them. Amtrak train with 183 passengers and crew on board. Maybe you heard about this. Huh. was on its oh. way back to civilization last week after it hit a fallen tree and was stranded in the snowy Oregon wilderness. For 37 hours. Yeah. Mm-mm. There's a play there. Those... A train full of Amtrak passengers, and the variety of Amtrak passengers can be vast. Sure. You could put anybody in there. Amtrak's Coast Starlight. Our producer also loves to travel by Amtrak. Yeah. We once took a train from uh, Chicago to Denver, and we were stuck in the... Well, we were going farther than Denver, but we got stuck in the Rocky Mountains, and we just sat there for hours and hours and hours. Uh, this train was en route to Los Angeles from Seattle early Sunday evening. That's a week ago when the mishap left the train immobilized near Oak Ridge, Oregon, about 150 miles south of Portland. Heavy snow and other fallen trees made the train temporarily unreachable. It was decided, said the Amtrak Chief Operating Officer Scott Napperstack. I love that name. It was decided that the safest place for our customers was to remain on the train where we were able to provide food, heat, electricity, and toilets. <laughs> I think that that's probably, that's probably oh, wise. Though the food on Amtrak uh, not is great. not great, right? And I'm sure they must have run it's out. It's a little like the Fire Island cheese sandwiches. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I've only ever been on Amtrak long enough to have like peanut M&Ms. But I used to pretty frequently take the train back and forth. I grew up in Michigan, so I would take the train from Chicago to Ann Arbor. My parents would pick me up in the Ann Arbor station. But there were certainly some some dicey winter rides there that took longer than they should have. And it's very you very quickly start to like it starts to feel like Lord of the Flies where you're <laughs> like people get very, very defensive very quickly when they think that there are limited numbers of resources. Oh yes. The mob mentality starts to kind of percolate a little bit. Yeah. Jessica, you mentioned you have a day job mm-hmm. that you teach high school students. Tell me a little bit about that. Are you a regular high school teacher, or do you work with a program of performing uh, students? So I teach uh, the sophomore actors at Shy Arts. They have one of the longest school days in the country, where from 
seven to or seven thirty to one, they have all their academic classes, and then they get an hour lunch, and then from two to five, they do all of their conservatory stuff. So it's it's wild. And then wow. after that, they rehearse and put on shows. I teach uh, acting too, so we do a lot of uh, contemporary American realism, and I also teach theater for social change. So looking at the plays of Anna Devere Smith and Terrell Allen McCraney and other contemporary writers who use some sort of uh, social justice bent to their writing. So yeah, I teach that for the juniors and the seniors. Do they know that you're in the play? They do know that I'm in the play. There was an idea to bring a, a senior English class, but tickets sold out so fast. So now they're reading Exit Strategy. That was okay. the, the compromise. Shy Arts is the program that you work for. Yeah, it's the Chicago High School for the Arts. It's uh, located in Humble Park. They've been around for, this is the 10th year. Oh, I, I've yeah. looked them up recently. I Don't they have a show tonight? Aren't they doing their big musical yes, tonight? they open Bring It On tonight. Bring It On. Yeah, nice. It on. They're jumping, they're flying, they're singing. Speaking of other jobs and doing things beyond the theater, I read somewhere that you used to work as a hired patient for Northwestern Medical School. Wow, this research. Yeah. I. Um. <laughs> what struck me about that is that we had another actor on not long ago who also did the same thing, and I was fascinated by the whole thing. Did you, en- did you enjoy doing that? And, and what was the worst disease you were ever given to, to oh, pretend to have? Oh, boy. That, that could get dark. Uh, it was very useful to me uh because my mother had retired so I was off of her insurance after that point and I being a higher patient was the the way I could like make some money and also you know take my blood pressure and have these med students Uh, take care of me a little bit so that was yeah that was a good time I think the the hardest thing that I ever had well the 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 hardest disease I ever had to portray was I I played someone who had some sort of psychotic break. So for the whole time, I was just staring off and muttering. And I did that for about six hours. Like uh, new doctors would come in and try to (laughs) engage with me. And I I couldn't because that was the gig. And then after I I got ice cream because you have to do something (laughs) for yourself after uh, a day like that. So sure, it was weird. But it's a good acting exercise, oh, didn't sure. you think? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah. I mean, it's a it's a job. It's some a job. of it's a job. Some of those doctors. Mm-hmm. I mean, the 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 joke of people having to learn bedside manner isn't a joke, right? No, 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 no. I had some very rude doctors. I'm like, whoa. I'm just here from my head to toe. You can be a little kinder to sure. me, and it was very. But now. Different, sure. different skill sets over there. So, I wanted to uh, relate just a quote here. The late, great Martha Levy would have been 62 last week. Mm-hmm. And here are some words that I think we could use right now. A personal interest of mine is how do we become better citizens, she said in 2015 uh, in an interview at Northwestern University. Because I think that at the heart of making theater are precious tools for citizenship, How do we grow more nuanced, there's that word again, more eloquent in our understanding of human interaction? I think that's a wonderful quote. Do you agree with that, Jonathan? Yeah, I mean, it's... Well, uh, how could you not agree with it? But uh, what's your take on that? Martha was such an eloquent eloquent leader and a gentle sort of guide and a staunch advocate for theater, but specifically what theater can do in terms of a, um, a civil conversation. We're breaking ground at Steppenwolf on Tuesday for the new building, and that was her, so much of her sort of focus in the, at the, the end of her life, trying to sort of move that, move that building forward. So it does, it, it feels nice to talk about sort of Martha Levy right now, to remember her, her legacy that way. The ability that theater has to get a group of people together in a room and experience someone else's position and point of view and hopefully then look at it from a position of empathy. My, my parents and I disagree pretty vehemently politically quite a bit. They've been remarkably supportive of my career and they 
continue to come to everything. And, you know, I, I believe that their positions have at least been sort of broadened because they have to sit in, in the room and watch, watch some stories of, of human beings going through something that maybe they didn't necessarily sort of have access to uh, before they walked through the door. Mm-hmm. So I do. I'm, you know, I think you have to be a big believer in that. And it doesn't mean that every, every play has to have an agenda. But again, right now, I think I prefer, I prefer to be working on pieces that, that I feel like are in, involved in the national conversation, involved in empathetically looking at a position and hopefully seeing, seeing yourself in a person that maybe you didn't necessarily see. We sort of half mentioned, half mentioned Birdland earlier, which is something that I worked on. But you know, the the character at the center of Birdland, which is a steep show that I did last year, that person is uh, behaves monstrously, has um, you know some really really terrible behavior. I think the the project of the play is in some ways to to look at that and start to sort of try to understand the root of it, not to excuse the behavior, never to excuse the behavior, but I don't think that we make progress unless we understand the behavior and then start to get at the root of it. Um, I think Red Rex does, does something hopefully similarly, is how do, you, how do you look at the mistakes that were made? How do you look at those people who made those mistakes? And then relate to them and hopefully then think about what you can do in your own life to prevent doing that or to to understand other people's situations a little bit more more clearly a little bit yeah jessica i think that the red rex goes right to the heart of this where martha says that at the heart of making theater are precious tools for citizenship Mm -hmm. i feel much more part of the human race after seeing Red Rex. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's what great theater and great plays should do. And I I would put Red Rex right up there with one of the great plays I've seen in a very, very long time. I think it has a lot to say. Do you agree with that? Absolutely. I think that this play forces you to hold the mirror up to yourself. Um, I think that it's important to acknowledge the things that make you itchy and that make you uncomfortable in those conversations that challenge you and push you and why like it's it's useful to think why am I thinking about this thing that I'm thinking about why am I having this experience and not necessarily as a a means to get out of it like oh let me put this at an arm's length but when you're unpacking it because you know what we've been rehearsing this since December 1st yeah and it's uh March 2nd and I'm still Oh well, that ooh well maybe this, you know, like mm. why why is this reaction happening and what is this reminding me of and how have I in some ways been guilty and how in some ways have I uh, allowed something to go further than I wanted it to? So I think that that's also when we talk about becoming better citizens, you have to be self-critical in a way that is loving and, and, you know, with empathy toward yourself, but it also, you have to work on you first before you can uh, take it out into the world. The play is Red Rex by Ike Holter, now at Steep Theater through March 30th at 1115 West Berwyn. Go to steeptheater.com to get your tickets. This comes very, very highly recommended by Booth One, directed by Jonathan Berry and featuring performances by a number of terrific actors, including Jessica Dean Turner. This is a question that I've asked many of our guests before, and I'm always fascinated by the answer. So I'll start with you, Jessica. If you could have chosen to do something else in your life other than this life in the theater, and you're a very young woman, and you've got plenty of life ahead of you, unlike me. Um, <laughs> what what would that be? What could that be? I think I would like to be a modern dancer. I have no skill or training in it, but I think, you know, if I could start my training over, I, I don't know. A modern dancer. Yeah, I like to pretend I'm one. Like, around my apartment, I'll roll down one sock, you know, the way that people do, and then... <laughs> But nothing will happen. I'm like, oh, yes, 
like just <laughs> arms and legs. But I have, so if I could, you know, go get some training, maybe oh, Alvin Ailey dancer. Alvin Ailey dancer, you know. Martha Graham I'm dance you, company. I'd like to write that for you. <laughs> right. I'd like to see that. <laughs> How about you, Jonathan? Have you uh, thought about this? Is there... Uh, you've obviously committed yourself to this yeah, life, so I'm pretty deep in it at this you're point. You're pretty but, deep. Um, I got really lucky that uh, my mom went back to work when I was like in seventh grade, so I kind of had to figure out cooking stuff early on. So that's always been something that I felt pretty comfortable with, and I really, you know, I wish I had more time for. And there's a there's a version of, I mean, gosh. Chef might be like the only job outside of theater that has like worse and sort of more grueling hours. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, but uh, <laughs> but I could see a version of my life where I would do that for a bit. Um, you yeah. know, I I like the camaraderie of a kitchen. I like yeah. that it's a collaborative group in there. I like yeah. that, like there's a team mentality to that, and um, and I like. I like creating food. So I, I, I do as well. I, I think I could I think I could be a chef, but the hours are brutal, as you know. The, the stress of that is uh, yeah. it's real. It I mean, I cook Thanksgiving dinner and I barely get through it in terms of like the pressure of everything getting out at once and yeah. You know. Well, and as a professional chef, you're frequently also a partner in the restaurant business so yeah. you've got the pressure of that as well and and the pressure of the kitchen and it must be a nightmare i don't know how people do it i think you would be excellent at that <laughs> really truly it has a lot of anyone di- yet has a lot of directing skills involved in it and a yeah. lot of precision well if you like what you hear and you'd like to support booth one and bringing you the best and lively conversation i have to do this shameless oh, no. plug about the arts and fascinating guests like Jonathan Berry and Jessica Dean Turner, you can go to our website at www.booth-1, that's dash one.com Click on the donate button. It's easy. It'll make you feel good. And it's tax deductible under our 501c3 status as a nonprofit entity. Any and all contributions would be greatly appreciated. We always end our podcasts with a segment that you may know from listening to our podcasts uh, called The Kiss of Death. This is actually a celebration of someone's life that we've just recently lost. This is uh, excerpted from the New York Times by uh, Giovanni Russinello, who is a music critic and covers jazz and improvised music for the New York Times. Ethel Ennis was in bed one night in the mid-1950s when Billie Holiday called. Ms. Ennis was in her mid-twenties at the time, a jazz vocalist on the rise, and like Holiday, a product of Baltimore. At first, she figured it was a prank call. Well, who wouldn't? Hi, this is Billie Holiday on the phone <laughs> at 2 a.m. But she quickly recognized Holiday's dusty voice. You have a great voice. You don't fake it, she remembered Holiday saying. Keep it up and you'll be famous. Miss Ennis soon fulfilled Holiday's prophecy for only a short time, however. She recorded for major labels in the 50s and 60s, toured Europe with Benny Goodman, performed on stage alongside Miles Davis, John Coltrane, Louis Armstrong, and appeared on television with Duke Ellington. She headlined the Newport Jazz Festival, and in 1961, she won the Playboy Jazz Poll for Best Female Singer. But she soon grew disillusioned with the demands placed on young divas, and she eschewed national celebrity for quite her life in her hometown of Baltimore. She became a beloved performer and jazz advocate there, earning the unofficial title of Baltimore's First Lady of Jazz. Hmm. I want to do it my way. I have no regrets, she said. Miss Ennis's performances uh, reflected her convictions. She sang in a sturdy, beaming voice that was quite different from Holiday's tatter silk purr. Giovanni mm-hmm. Russinello has a way with some words. Her readings of popular songs and standards had as much in common with Etta James's effulgent soul singing. I had to look that word up. Do you know what effulgent means? No. It means radiant or shining brightly. Mm-hmm. James's effulgent soul singing, as with Fitzgerald's elegant diction. Ethel Llewellyn Ennis was born in Baltimore in 1932. She was raised by her mother who played piano and organ in storefront churches and by her maternal grandmother. Both caretakers were strict Methodists who refused to play jazz and blues in the house. But the music came thumping through the floor from the apartment below, and Ethel grew to love it. 
She learned piano at age 15 and started playing in nightclubs around town with an otherwise all-male band. When an audience member one night requested a blues song that required a female singer, she stepped up and sang. It was a turning point. She was just 22 when she recorded her debut album, Lullabies for Losers. Ella Fitzgerald soon stated that Miss Ennis was her favorite young vocalist, and Frank Sinatra called her my kind of singer. But rather than lean into her stardom, she decided to marry Mr. Earl Arnett in 1967, violating Maryland's anti-miscegenation laws, and buy a house in central Baltimore. She briefly landed back in the spotlight in 1973 when she sang the national anthem at President Richard Nixon's second inaugural. She was a lifelong Democrat, but they asked her to do it because she was so popular. And if you find her doing that on YouTube you'll recognize a certain free-flowing jazz style to it that Mm. is very common today when people sing the national anthem. You hear lots of notes all over the place. Apparently, she was the first to really try that style (laughs) with this Francis Scott Key song. A blizzard of media opportunities followed, of course. Her album, The Ten Sides of Ethel Ennis, was rushed into release. But she continued to focus on the home front from 84 to 88. She and Mr. Arnett ran Ethel's Place, a jazz club in central Baltimore. I bet that was fun, don't you think, Jessica? Yeah. If Women Ruled the World, released in 1998 on the Savoy Jazz label, found her performing songs by Joan Armitrading, Joni Mitchell, Tracy Chapman, and others. That album's final track, named Hey You, is an original composition with a chorus that amounts to a statement of beliefs. I'll just read the stanza here. Hey you, are you doing what you want to do? Yes you, are you doing what you want to do? Because life's a treasure, time's a measure. So why not to yourself be true? Ethel Ennis, singer who walked away from fame, she was 86. As I, I said there, she was overshadowed by a lot of other singers who plugged away at their careers where she kind of shied away from it and mm-hmm. and I went back to Baltimore. I think she was asked one time, why Baltimore? And she said, why not? It's my hometown. <laughs> it's where I grew up. Well, thank you, Jonathan and Jessica, for being our guests yeah. today here in the booth. We so appreciate your candor and your good humor and for taking the time to sit in on the booth with us. Uh, visit www.booth-one.com for prior episodes and more information about our program for Booth One. This is Gary Zabinski saying so long and keep listening. Keep listening.